Ladies and gentlemen, the Brit Pack is back. Simon Head, Chamakar Sandu. It is episode number 24 of the MMA show that brings you the latest opinion with a distinctly British flavour. Mr. Sandu, it's, uh, it wasn't a UFC weekend this weekend, but we still have plenty to talk to. Bellator 170 took place at the Forum in Inglewood, California, and... Uh, Possibly not the most stellar event in terms of performances, but we had loads to pick through by the time we got to the end of that. But uh, before we go into that, how's your week been? Yeah, it's been all right. It's, it's really cold um, in London uh, here and here in England. For those of us, for those of you that are listening uh, internationally, it's bitterly cold. Um, it's been interesting uh, and also uh, at times hilarious to to follow the the inauguration of you know, President Donald Trump. Um, so it was a it was a it was a funny weekend just to kind of from afar uh, see some of the uh, the interesting um, memes uh, and videos and uh, and hashtags come out of uh, alternative facts, Andrew. It's all about all, the alternative facts. Yes. Uh, so yeah, it, it's been it's been a funny weekend um, just to kind of see some of the things that are happening outside of the sport. I'm not the kind of person that actually. Um, follows current affairs too closely because uh, I'm so absorbed into this wonderful sport of ours um, but I had a chance to kind of uh, follow some uh, some Sky News and some CNN over the weekend and uh, and actually I saw Aziz Ansari's uh, monologue uh, on Saturday Night Live um, this morning uh, where he essentially kind of mocks uh, Trump's inauguration and, and that's, a, that's a good shout. If you can find Aziz Ansari's monologue for Saturday Night Live, it's on Facebook's on YouTube. I highly recommend it. It's hilarious. So, um, so yeah, it, it was it wasn't a, a big UFC weekend. Uh, Bellator obviously kicked off their 2017 campaign, um, and uh, yeah, I'm good. To, I'm ready to talk about it. Yeah, it was it was uh, as I say, being being a gap week. Obviously, we we focus predominantly on the UFC. That's the that's the biggest show in town for MMA fans here in the UK, at least. Um, one of the things with Bellator, obviously, they are, you know, they're a growing promotion. They're the number two consensus, number two promotion in the world for mixed martial arts right now. They haven't quite got things sorted in terms of a TV deal on this side of the pond yet. So, if you haven't watched Bellator 170 and you don't want to know the results, then you might not want to listen to this show. And as it, you know, we need all the listeners we can get. Let me be honest. Maybe spool through to the end so that it registers as a play for us, but don't actually listen to it. But you can actually watch the fights. They're coming up this Saturday night on Spike UK. I think it's 10 o'clock, is it, Sandu? 10 p.m.? It's 10 p.m. this Saturday night. That's right. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'll be honest, there aren't that many outstanding moments to uh, to look out for until you get to the top of the card when all hell breaks loose it becomes it goes from a pretty uh, run-of-the-mill event in a in a fantastic venue to something that anybody who would have been watching it at the time will be walking away going wow have we just seen two pieces of mma history happen right in front of us it was uh, it was a remarkable way to finish the night let's talk about the co-main event first sandu Mm. And uh, being the Brit Pack, it only makes sense to do so because Paul Sentex Daily um, stepping into the Bellator cage once again, looking to rebound from that from that loss to to Douglas Lima back in London last year. Went in there against Brennan Ward, a guy who he knows very well. I understand he's become good friends with Brennan's family, and uh, stepped in there with Brennan Ward. Ward promised to stand and trade with him. Promptly shot 
two takedown attempts on him and took him down twice. And while my Twitter timeline was calling the guy a liar, then uh, then Daly just showed everybody why his nickname is Semtex. Spinning back elbow, backs him up against the fence, and then as he starts to advance again, Daly hits him with a picture perfect, picture perfect flying knee, and that was the end of it. Walk, walk off, flying knee knockout. And uh, if we're going to see a better knockout in 2017, then boy, are we going to see something special, Sandy? That was that was pretty special, wasn't it? It really was. Um, and I think there was a lot of, uh, I don't know if it was talked about too much during fight week, but uh, for me, I certainly felt as though this, this was a big pressure fight for Paul Daly. Uh, like you mentioned, he was coming off that loss in a main event slot for, for the promotion's debut in England, in London uh, last summer where you and me were both cage side for. Um, and obviously, Douglas Lima went on to win the uh, the welterweight championship after that fight. Um, so knowing that the big spotlight was going to be on Tito Ortiz versus Chael Sonnen, and I'm sure it's going to do gangbuster numbers when the, the ratings actually come out, uh, to have a massive spotlight in a co-main event um, really kind of uh, gave Paul an, op- an opportunity here to get things back on track, and boy, did he. I, I, I genuinely thought that this was going to be a fireworks of a fight. I don't think that this was going to be boring, and it, and it certainly wasn't. Um, and, and immediately, the minute the, the, the knockout happened, I had flashbacks to um, last last summer, being in London and watching another British welterweight in Michael Venom Page deliver that flying knee knockout, which is essentially uh, for me the knockout of 2016. Um, so it'll be it'll be it'll be amazing if if uh, two British welterweights in Bellator are able to claim back to back knockouts of the year for 2016, 2017, and that very that very well may be the case. But more importantly. Um, what this win does is it really puts Paul Daly right back in the mix. Um, and he's certainly got a, a fiery uh, personality and he made sure he put that to good use in the post-fight interview uh, by calling out um, Marky signee for Bellator in Rory McDonald. Um, he's come over from the UFC. Rory's looking to make his debut sometime in June and July. Um, I'm actually going to uh, throw a bold prediction in here. I actually think that with Bellator coming back to London, I would presume at some stage this year, if they aim for that July time slot, which is what they did last year, how about Rory McDonald versus Paul Semtex Daly as the main event for Bellator's second event in London? I think that would be fantastic. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. I don't know if they would do it just because it, because of the time zone and things like that, but... The actual matchup would be would be out of this world. I also think that uh, an all British matchup at some stage, whether it's next or further down the line, wouldn't it be great to have a Brit versus a Brit with a World Championship belt on the line? That would be perfect. But but the the, uh, the prospect of Paul Semtex Daly taking on Michael Venom Page on home soil just it doesn't get much better than that in terms of uh, two British fighters in their prime fighting it at, at an incredibly high level. Uh, that that would be something that would certainly uh, certainly pack out an arena here in the UK. Interesting, he called out Rory McDonald. Rory McDonald's response on Twitter was to was to tweet that that famous Zach Galifianakis clip of of him just sort of sniggering away. He clearly doesn't doesn't fancy. He, well, he's clearly not at all concerned by the threat of Paul Semtex Daily. And uh, Michael Venom Page also tweeted saying. Looks like somebody's been watching my fights or something like that, or someone's been taking notes or something like that. So it was, 
I, th- I think all of a sudden, from being someone who was in danger of perhaps falling away from prominence in that 170-pound Bellator welterweight division, Paul Santex Daly all of a sudden is finding options beginning to open up for him. Obviously, his eyes are on, on the gold. He wants to get back in there and challenge for the title. But he's got the possibility of taking on fellow countryman Michael Vellum Page. He's also got... And the interesting thing about this, Sandu, was that was the fight they were mentioning in the commentary. They yeah. were, Jimmy Smith was pushing that fight in commentary. He was using the comparisons. He kept mentioning the fact that he could potentially fight Michael Vellum Page. That always gives a hint to what possibly is being discussed behind the scenes at Bellator HQ. So it'd be interesting to see just what they do with Michael Venom Page going forward and also with Paul Semtex Daly. He's got options. The thing against Michael Venom Page right now is his last performance wasn't the best. If no. he'd if he'd have come off a, a spectacular win, if his last win had been that cyborg fight, for example, it'd be teed up perfectly. But I think, you know, promotionally it would be a very easy thing to do to effectively uh leave that Fernando Gonzalez fight to one side and just have just basically build that narrative these two devastating strikers getting in there and that that I think is probably the more likely matchup if if they're going to do it in London just because Roy McDonald is a is a big draw in America and I think they'd want him to fight on an American time zone but as as a matchup I'd certainly love to see it well it'll be interesting to see which one of our predictions comes through to fruition because um, I also like the MVP daily matchup. I just don't think that Michael Page would wait until the summer, which is when I think Bellator are going to return to the UK, um, to to London, um, probably at some time in July. Um, I think Page is going to want to fight a little bit sooner than that. Now, daily, I think, would wait until summer. Um, he just fought this past weekend. Four or five months until June and July, I think he'll he'll be able to wait, especially if they offer him the McDonald fight. Now, the reason I made that bold prediction of Daly and McDonald taking place in London is before he passed away, they were about to bring Kimbo Slice over, which is the biggest draw they had in their roster. Um, and and maybe a lot of listeners in the UK may not know this, but the way Bellator structures um, their broadcast in the states is they'll have it broadcast at 9 p.m on the east coast and west coast which means the east coast gets it live and then the west coast gets it uh, on a two or three hour tape delay so even though we complain in the uk of of not getting it at all uh until a week later and we have to find some online gimmick to to kind of you know watch uh the card i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) um it's, it's not ideal for um, the U.S. viewers either, you know, especially if they want to kind of interact and engage with the actual fights um, live. Now, Bellator's response, because um, John Slusser, the uh, Spike executive, was asked about this in the post-fight press conference. It comes down to ratings at the end of the day, and for them, that format seems to work. So if if they did do McDonald versus Daly here in the U.K., um, We'd obviously get it first, and then they would get it about five or six hours later. But it, I don't think it would affect their ratings too much. Um, again, it's not ideal, 
for uh, a global MMA fan base to be interacting and watching uh, a particular fight at the exact same time. Uh, but under Viacom's umbrella uh, for Bellator, it seems to do the trick in, with regards to ratings. So that's the only reason it makes me think that they might bring McDonald over. McDonald also actually, before leaving the UFC, was scheduled to fight in London and is really pushing for uh, the London card a couple of years ago. Um, it didn't uh, come to fruition. Um, but yeah, the fact that they were willing to put their biggest draw in Kimbo Slice to headline the London card does make me think if they're willing, if they were willing to do it with Kimbo, they'd be willing to do it with anybody else. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I hadn't, I hadn't actually considered that at the, at the time. And good point about Rory almost fighting in London before. Of course, the fight that they were, it, it looked like they were trying to make at the time in the UFC was him against Hector Lombard. If that fight had been made, we wouldn't have had. Michael Bisbing versus Anderson Silva. And then we may not have had Michael Bisbing versus Luke Rockhold. And we might not even have Michael Bisbing world champion. So it's funny how these things sometimes work out. What would have been a fantastic welterweight matchup to head up UFC Fight Night London last year fell through, opened the door for Michael Bisbing, and he went on to have a fighter of the year year in 2016. Uh, Someone who has decided to make 2017 his final year, or January 2017, uh, the very final month of his career, supposedly at least, is, is Tito Ortiz. He's been in the game for so, so long. He was he was fighting at the very top of the UFC when I first started watching the UFC regularly, back in the days when it was on Bravo. And uh, he had uh, he had his rivalries with, uh, with Ken Shamrock and latterly Chuck Liddell and... It was, it's something I've, I've, I remember vividly watching those Tito Ortiz fights. He was the champion at the time, and uh, here he is. He's you know still going. Went in there with Chael Sonnen, who returned to the sport after a couple of years off due to anti-doping suspensions, and uh, he got the win. Lots to talk about here. The fight itself didn't last that long, but uh, first of all, let's just talk about Tito because. This is a guy who, he's not everybody's cup of tea. I know there are some people who absolutely love him. And I know an awful lot of people who, you know, he isn't their, he isn't exactly their cup of tea. But I don't think anyone can, can deny the, the importance and impact that he's had on the sport during his career. He's, he's one of the people who's helped bring the sport from the dark ages into the modern day. And he's arguably the first fighter to really go all in on self-promotion. And, and pushing his own personal brand. And uh, he's an example that a lot of fighters has, have followed since. And uh, we've now got fighters such as Conor McGregor doing it to a sort of a stratospheric level now in the UFC. But probably the first guy to ever really do it was Tito. And I think he's a bit of a pathfinder in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. He was uh, amongst that group in the early days, you know, with Hoist Gracie, Ken Shamrock, and Chuck Liddell, and Randy Couture. These are the guys... Um, that were pioneers of the sport. Uh, they were very important figures in the sport. They helped get it to another level, get mainstream acceptance, um, helped you know break pay per view records and really get it to the, the you know in front of the masses. Um, you mentioned 
um, how he was able to use his personality. And he, like you said, he had people that loved him. He had people that hated him. But that's the point, isn't it? You know, he wasn't indifferent. He was very polarizing. And regardless of which side of the fence you were on, with regards to Teotihuacan, you would tune in to watch him fight, whether you wanted him to, wanted him to win or if you wanted him to lose. Um, and that's that's the ideal spot for every, every fighter to get into because that's where you become the biggest draw. That's how you make the most money. But even from a technical standpoint, he was one of the guys that was really able to utilize the takedowns um, and get into mount position and start to use um, the ground and pound. He was Mr. Ground and Pound back in the day, you know. And again, this is when the, the sport was evolving and uh, all the fighters were starting to figure out how best to utilize all the facets of the game. And, you know, it's it's a, it's a near 20-year career. He's had multiple surgeries. He's had his ups and downs um, with the UFC, Dana White, um, with the sport itself. Uh, he did retire before, um, but everything that I read from his performance to his post-fight interview to having his son, uh, Jacob, um, leave his Bellator MMA gloves in the center of the cage all the way to the post-fight interview, uh, press conference, sorry, um, allows me to believe that this is definitely it for him. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, considering that just a week before we saw BJ, Pe BJ Penn um, get absolutely mauled by Yair Rodriguez, um, which, which was his fourth you know, loss in a row. Uh, it, it's kind of nice to see somebody who's uh, a little bit older, actually a lot older than BJ Penn, um, go out on a, on a high note, uh, on a high note, sorry, in a match that was uh, fairly uh, balanced, I thought, in terms of the matchmaking was, was perfect here. Two guys, seasoned veterans, similar in age, who were able to compete um, on, a, on an even keel, so to speak, uh, and good for Tito Ortiz. You know, he goes out on, on a high note, and I think that's all you can really ask for at this stage of your career, um, if you're, especially if you're a veteran like Tito Ortiz was. Yeah, 42 years of age. Uh, what are we talking about? 32 professional fights. He finished, finishes with a record of 19 wins, 12 losses, and one draw. And perhaps crucially, he goes out having been a world champion in the UFC, and he goes out on a win. And how rare is that in this day and age? You know, in any kind of combat sport, for someone to to know that this is the time to get out and to be able to go out with a win. You know, we um, I heard an interview just before we came on uh, with, uh, with with Tim Kennedy. He was on he was on with Ariel, and he obviously knew that his fight with Kelvin Gastelum was going to be his last fight. He knew that going in, right. and. Uh, he wasn't able to get the win that he wanted and he wasn't able to go out by putting his gloves down in, in the octagon and, and, and sort of making that grand gesture. You can't really do that when you've just been beat. So it was, uh, it, it, it's not always easy to know when to hang them up. And Tito has been in a game for a very long time. And, you know, people have said that he should have hung him up a while ago. I mean, he lost three on the spin when he was eventually dropped by the UFC. That was back in 2012. He's had four fights in Bellator and he's gone three and one, and his only loss was against Liam McGeary, who won the world title in that fight. So he's had he's had he's managed to extend his career admirably in the uh, in the last three years or so, three or four years, and uh, he's he's had four more fights: Alexander Shlomenko, Stefan Bonner, Charles Sonnen, all giving him additional wins to add to his record. And uh, I've got to be honest, I'm a Tito fan. I'm a Tito fan. He he was the first big character in the sport when I started watching it, as I say. And, uh, you know, he was a bit of a bad guy. You know, he, he was the Huntington Beach bad boy. And then he became the people's champion after a while. And, uh, yeah, I think it's it, it's the perfect note on which for him to walk away from the sport. 
as a participant. He certainly sounded from his post-fight comments that he might fancy sticking around in another capacity with Bellator, whether it be as an, in some sort of ambassadorial role or whether it be in some, some sort of like front-facing role, I don't know. But um, with the wealth of experience that he has, you know, he's got an awful amount of knowledge and experience, I'm sure, will be really valuable to some of the young prospects coming up through the field at the Bellator MMA ranks. Let's talk about Chael. Yes. Uh, he's been out for two years. Uh, he competed at a, a good, solid level in the UFC, fought for the World Championship uh, on, a, on a couple of occasions, didn't quite win the big one, but was considered someone who was up there or thereabouts as being, you know, one of the better fighters in his weight class. He's a two years away after, after failing uh, anti-doping tests, and he came back. What did you make of him? What did you make of him? How did he look? Because to me, that wasn't the same Chael Sonnen that we saw in the UFC. Even though he wasn't always winning his fights in the UFC, he wasn't. He didn't look as solid. He didn't look as strong. And uh, resistance-wise, he didn't offer as much resistance to Tito as I as I was expecting him to, for sure. Well, well, first of all, I think it's actually longer than two years. I think he last competed uh, back in November of 2013. So it was actually a return to action after three full years. Uh, well, first of all, number one, he's not a light heavyweight. Um, I think you can. we, we all clearly saw um, he was carrying a lot of excess weight. Um, he is a natural middleweight. And Tito Ortiz is a very big light heavyweight. And God bless him. He came in ridiculous, ridiculous shape, especially for a 42-year-old man who's had the career he's had and the multiple injuries and surgeries that he's had. Um, so I, I think Chael was outsized in the contest itself. Secondly, you mentioned the anti-doping um, you know, situation with Chael Sonnen, and that's a factor. You know, The fact that um, he was coming off um, a, a lengthy suspension and we don't know how long he was using it in what fights so whatever uh, physical condition or shape we were aesthetically used to seeing Chael come in at there was obviously a massive difference there as well um, I think the time off obviously hurt him um, T.O.T.'s also had quite a lengthy layoff but not as long as Chael um, and he mentioned it himself and in, in the post-fight press conference and he was being quite honest um, with himself as well um, he was quite taken back by the bright lights and even the first punch that Tito threw and you know you can try and mimic all of these things in training and in sparring but it's a whole different ball game when the actual fight takes place um, And uh, but to be honest with you with, that, with all of that being said I was expecting more of Chael, I really was. Um, I actually picked him to win the fight. Um, so, so, did I. Was, so you know, hands up, I was wrong there. And um, and 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 I think when when the Bellator matchmakers put this together, I th I think they thought right, okay, well, win or lose, Tito gets his exit from the sport. He'll get his retirement fight on a big stage. But I think deep down, they were think this is could this could potentially be um, the platform for Chael to make his big return, make his big comeback, and then he'll call out Vandalay Silva in his post-fight interview, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and really kick off and push off from there. Um, and it didn't go that way, you know. Um, so Chael's got some work to do. He has some work to do. Um, he needs to get, like you said, some minutes in. Um, but I, but I think the way he handled it um, allows us to still be on board with another fight, at least one more big marquee fight. Hopefully, it's with Vandalay Silva. But but when he does return uh, to uh, the Bellator cage, 
that's going to be a big one for Chell because if you start your Bellator career uh, 0-2, then I think people will start to tune off pretty quickly regardless of how good your personality is and regardless of how good you are in terms of promoting and selling a fight. It certainly damages your ability to headline, doesn't it? I know he's, mm. he's, one, of the, he's one of the best salesmen in, in the sport and... But you still have to be relevant as well as a competitor, and and yeah. being able to talk a good game, and he talks a he talks a great game, does Chael. But you've got to be able to still back it up, even in defeat. You've got to be competitive, and uh, he really didn't look that competitive in that fight, and that I think was perhaps the biggest shock, and it's led to a few accusations being thrown around and the things like this. And I'm sure we'll we'll, we'll come on to that later in the show with the Q and A. But um, for me, I think the the Vanderlei Silva fight is the common sense fight to make. I don't think at this stage in his career, Chow has any business getting in there with a Liam McGeary or a Phil Davis or even a King Mo or a Rampage Jackson who were announced that they're going to they're gonna have a rematch. King Mo, Rampage Jackson, they're going to go at it again. Uh, I believe, was it March? March 18th, was it? I can't, I can't remember the date, but... Um, it's sometime in March. Yeah, it's... Uh, so we're going to see a rematch of that fight. But that will be a heavyweight, interestingly. But, um, yeah, I think Chael is in that in that stage now where he's almost in like a master's division. Do you know what I mean? It's it's like the, the, old, the old pros who perhaps they can't quite compete on a world championship level. But on a one-on-one, put one master against one master, one veteran against one veteran, you've still got a compelling match up there. And I think Chow versus Vanderlei, way back to when they were coaching opposite each other on the Ultimate Fighter, I think that's a that's a bout that's been bubbling under for quite some time, and it's a no-brainer for them to make that at some point. Whether it's a headliner or a co-headliner, to be honest, I think it probably is a headliner. Yeah, uh, I agree. because just because of the uh, just because of the gravitas of the two guys involved, but I think uh, I think a defeat for Sonnen in that fight. Then, then you are beginning to reduce him to the role of sideshow. So, it's uh, very interesting times for for, for Charles Sonnen in Bellator. I believe he's got a six fight contract. Um, he does, yeah. And he says he, he says he intends on honouring that. So, at the, at, the, at this point, I'm not sure how many other fights there are out there for him in that in that light heavyweight division. So, it'll be interesting to see what what happens. One light heavyweight who may soon be joining him is Ryan Bader. I understand that talks between. Bellator MMA officials and Ryan Bader are reaching advanced stages right now. And it sounds like there's a fair chance that Ryan Bader, who is now a free agent, could make that jump. And it's interesting because we've been we've been talking online. I've been answering or trying to answer a few questions on, on Twitter from a few fans asking about the the UFC London card and people said, saying who's going to be the main event. And yeah. Alexander Gustafsson is a potential a potential fighter on that card and a potential main eventer, but you look down the list of who he could potentially fight. Ryan Bader's probably the most likely name, um, but he's in this contract situation now where he's probably going to weigh up options from Bellator, and obviously the UFC will get the option to match that, and then he'll have a decision to make. So, very interesting times for him. He could end up moving over to Bellator MMA in a not too distant future. One thing I did want to mention. Sandu, just because we don't we don't get to see Bellator that often, obviously mm. you know UFC is almost a, almost a weekly occurrence these days. What's your take on the the different staging of Bellator events compared to compared to UFC events? Obviously they do the walkouts different. You know the 
the uh, the way the the way the cage is mic'd up is different. You really hear the punches a lot lot cleaner on a Bellator event than you do on on a UFC event. You hear everything, every little graze, every thwack of a punch connecting. It it really seems to bring the action alive a little bit more than than the UFC broadcast. But what do you make of the? Are you, are you, are you a fan of the? of the ramp and the big screens? Or are you someone who prefers to see the fighters sort of coming through the crowd, high-fiving the crowd all the way through? Because they both work, but they're very different. Well, being the the massive pro wrestling fan that I am, um, my answer is very, very simple. I love it. I love the, the big screens. I love the, the ramp and the stage. I just think it allows um, the, the fighters to be able to get across uh, a personality, a brand, a gimmick, um, um, allow for the fireworks and all the bells and whistles like the song and the ramp and the lighting just allow it all i think it's more for the folks that are in the arena it kind of gives you a little bit more bang for your buck um just to kind of have a bit more kind of eye candy to see these fighters who are supposed to be larger than life anyway right these are the 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 top elite elite best fighters in the world so why not give them um the entrance uh, that they deserve like that um, I know it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but also bear in mind, and again, this probably goes back to your comment about uh, the micing, the mic setup in the actual cage itself. Bellator and Viacom, they are very much, um, and Spike TV, they are very much first and foremost an entertainment company. They know how to do these things when it comes to production. Um, and even to seeing all the big um, celebrities that were uh, in attendance, all the A-list celebrities, all the legends, even some big UFC fighters like Nate Diaz was in attendance um, to watch that card. All of these things, they just add to the overall event um, and, and, and made it a real tempo feel, right? Um, so, yeah, I'm a massive fan, uh, and it helps them distinguish themselves from the UFC who don't do that. So I think that's also a good thing as well. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the the old school Pride entrances where they, they play the Pride music, they walk all the fighters out, you got the pyro, you got the lights... I think the bigger the better. I I think some of the boxing walk-ons. I mean, yes, I, I remember the David Hay Vladimir Klitschko fight. The right. walkouts. The walkouts took forever. You can yeah. go. You can go too far. Yeah. But I think when it's done well, and the old Pride era with the, especially with the Grand Prix and stuff like that, I used to love that. I used to love that, and I would love to see more of that. I think it, as you say, it just adds to the sense of spectacle and the sense of occasion. Because you're going to get the fight anyway. The fight's going to happen. We all know this. But the sense of anticipation where you have, you know, you have that huge walkout. And think about it. You know, the, who are the fighters that really get the crowd amped up the most in the UFC? They tend to be the ones who've got the great walkouts. Michael Bisbee walking out to song two. That's iconic. When Anderson mm-hmm. Silva walks out to DMX, everyone knows, you know, when Ain't No Sunshine hits, they know Anderson's coming. You know, we, and and there's countless examples of of fighters who've got their own special walkout, and it makes a difference. And I think if the UFC could do something in the next year or so, obviously the the Reebok deal restricts that a little bit in terms of what they can wear, at least. But in terms of staging, I think there's 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 scope there for WME IMG to make a few little tweaks and changes. I love what Bellator do. I, you know, I can take or leave the ramp. I don't mind whether it's you know whether there's a ramp or whether you go through the crowds. It's just a different aesthetic. But I do think a bit more, a few more uh, bells and whistles would certainly do no harm. But 
as as a staged event, Bellator 170 gets a big thumbs up. In terms of the fights, yeah, not so much, but we got that spectacular knockout from Paul Sentex Daily. We saw Tito go out on top, and uh, we've got some questions to answer in terms of what next for for Chael Sonnen. That was this past weekend, Sandu. Yes. But the the UFC are back next weekend. Mm-hmm. We've got the UFC yes. UFC on Fox. What number are we on? UFC on Fox 23 in uh, Denver, Colorado, home to my beloved Denver Broncos, who sadly didn't even make the playoffs this year, but we won't talk about <laughs> that. Um, Valentina Shevchenko versus Juliana Pena is the main event with uh, a title shot almost definitely up for grabs for the winner. Donald Cerrone, Jorge Masvidal in the co-main. Andre Arlovsky against Francis Ngannou. That is a fight that you do not want to take your eyes off. Alex Kassar is Jason Knight. And a pretty solid-looking undercard as well. So let's kick off with the main event, Sandy. Valentina Shevchenko versus Juliana Pena. Striker versus wrestler, basically. Or striker mm. versus grappler. Uh, Juliana just wants to take you down and smash you into the dirt. Valentina Shevchenko, great footwork. Great counter striker, as we saw in a win over Holly Holm. You know, Holly Holm made Ronda Rousey look uh, pretty amateurish, but then Shevchenko did to Holm what Holm did to Rousey. She just just kept catching her with the counter strikes all the way through, and picked up the win that's put her within one victory of a title shot. And Juliana Pena, the first female Ultimate Fighter, she has been there or thereabouts for the best part of a year. How'd you see this one going? Interesting clash of styles, this one. Yeah, it's a very, very tough one to call, uh, this one, Sai. Um, I'll be honest, I wasn't impressed with Valentina Shevchenko until the Holly Holm fight. That's the fight that really made me look at her and say, wow, because she dominated Holly Holm for pretty much the entire fight. That was a, a clear, clear unanimous decision. But... With Juliana Pena, she's undefeated in the UFC, first of all, so she's been in there uh, longer than Shevchenko. To be honest with you, I think um, if, if if I'm the UFC's marketing department, if I'm their matchmakers, uh, and if I'm the owners, the, the bigger fight potentially um, for Amanda Nunes' uh, bantamweight championship would be the Juliana Pena fight. Because she's been the one that's been making the most noise. She knows how to cut a promo. She's a, she's a fiery character. She's a good interview. Um, she's been promoting herself very, very well over the last couple of years, even when she was out uh, due to a horrific uh, knee injury. Um, I think I will slightly lean towards Pena. Um, I just think she's been looking close to flawless she's been winning more consistently for longer um and um and and typically when it comes to a wrestler versus striker matchup more often than not the wrestler is the one that gives more of the problems to the striker so without all of that being said i'll probably will lean more towards juliana pena what will be interesting to see what happens is if she wins what she does in the uh, the post fight interview when she gets on the mic uh, if she calls out uh, amanda nunez and it'll also be fascinating to see what happens in the aftermath because just this past week, Amanda Nunes has come out and said that she wants to start a family soon. And she only wants to uh, compete two to three more times for the UFC and then call it a day right off into the sunset. And she's also said that she wants to fight the winner of Holly Holm and Jermaine Durandamy to become the very first woman to potentially become a dual champion. So she's kind of playing that Conor McGregor card. And we're, start- we're starting to see a lot of fighters 
um, that are tr trying to use that McGregor card and jump around weight classes, become two weight champions and whatnot. Uh, I know that you, Simon, you wrote a piece um, about this um, over the last couple of days, which I'm sure you want to maybe perhaps plug right now, but I thought it was a really good, good piece. And just looking at the state of the UFC, um, what Conor McGregor has done for himself, but then how potentially other fighters are trying to use that now as a blueprint to try and imitate um, that kind of, I suppose, pathway into getting multiple titles and big picture and big fight um, opportunities, especially when it's a champion versus champion situation. Yeah, I, I find it very interesting. Go to go to my website, simonhead.me.uk, and you'll see it on there. Uh, I did a piece today on, on, on Nicola Adams as well, the, uh, the the Team GB Olympic champion boxer, who um, we think could potentially be a, a good fit for the UFC women's strawweight division one day, but has decided to go pro and uh, take the more sensible route and stay stay in a lane and stay stay in boxing instead. Um, that's on there as well, so feel free to check that out as well. But yeah, the thing the thing with the uh, the Conor McGregor thing is, I think he's the exception rather than the rule. He's he gets he gets a pass because he just draws so much on he just draws so much money at the box office. He doesn't need a world championship belt to have a super fight. He fought Nate Diaz twice with no championships on the line, and they're the two biggest fights in UFC history. So in ter in terms of the gate, uh, sorry, in terms of the uh, the pay per view, so. It's 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 remarkable what he's done. Now he's opened the door and set a precedent, but that doesn't mean that everyone else gets the same as he does because he brings more to the party than anybody else does, and that's why he gets that 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 latitude from the UFC. I think uh, looking at this fight, you look at Juliana Pena versus Shevchenko. We tend not to see too many clean knockouts in women's MMA. It's not something we see that often. Obviously, Amanda Nunes has done it. Holly Holm did it to, to Ronda Rousey. It tends to be something where fighters generally break break each other down gradually, and then you get it's it's like a accumulation of strikes. And Valentina Shevchenko, I think, against someone like Juliana Pena is going to find it difficult over a five round course. I think Juliana Pena. Is just going to be in her face. She's not going to allow her any space to use her kicking game. She's not going to be so far away that Shevchenko can pick her shots. Unless Shevchenko can connect clean and do damage with individual shots as Pena comes in, I think Pena can walk through strikes, take a little bit of damage on the way in, take her to the mat. And I think once she gets her down, her top game is so strong. She's got such a good base that um, I can see her grinding out five rounds um uh, either going to decision or maybe getting a stoppage heading into the later rounds but i think i think it's it's Pena's fight to win and uh, i agree i think that's the more compelling matchup we've seen Amanda Nunes versus Valentina Shevchenko before that was an interesting fight i was at that fight at UFC 196 and had that fight gone more than 3 rounds Valentina Shevchenko would have won the fight because Nunes was running on fumes in the third round she started fast, won the first round easily. Second round was kind of close, but she just about edged it. But from the start of the third round onwards, it was all Valentina Shevchenko. Shevchenko versus Nunes over five rounds would be fascinating to watch. But I think in terms of a sellable fight, I think the Pena fight would probably edge it. But uh, yeah, if I'm Amanda Nunes, I think, I think if you can finish off the winner of this fight, 
then I think you've got a compelling argument to go up and have a have a go at the uh, the featherweight champion. But you, I think she's got business to attend to in her own division first. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that one goes. I think we're both agreed. Pena has probably got the edge, but Shevchenko's striking is is seriously good, seriously good. And I I, I think I think the clash the clash of styles. We we tend to see more clash style clashes in women's MMA where perhaps the skill sets or the specialisms are perhaps more defined in women's MMA where you've got Shevchenko who comes in with a Muay Thai background and you've got Pena coming in with a wrestling and grappling background. It it it, it makes for almost more old school style matchups and I'm looking forward to that one. It should be a really interesting match. As is the co-main event. That's not mm. going to be so much of a style matchup. We've got two guys who love to stand and trade. Donald Cowboy Cerrone, probably the on-form man in the UFC World Weight division. He can't be far away from being in that championship discussion, Sandu. I think he's probably one big win away from finding himself in a in a number one contender fight. I think he's that close. And uh, Jorge Masvidal, every time I see him fight, I think this guy's the real deal. But there's always that sense that you're not quite getting 100% of him whether he's taking his feet off the... It's almost like he finds it too easy sometimes. I don't know what it is. It might just be his manner, and actually he's just giving you everything he's got. But there's just something about him that gives you the impression that if you can squeeze another 2-3% out of him, you've got a potential championship contender on your hands. But that's going to be a belter of a fight. And if you're putting your money on fight of the night, that's right up there in the running, I think, to get fight of the night. Yeah, I mean, I think with Donald Cerrone, he was one of the... the the comeback fighters of 2016. He ended 2015 uh, with a pretty disastrous performance against Rafael de Santos. He finally got a crack at the, the lightweight championship and just capitulated uh, within a minute uh, of the opening bell. Uh, but he turned it around, moved up to welterweight. I think his body looks uh, a lot healthier. I think he's, his performances have been phenomenal uh, over the course of the last 12 months. He gets four wins um, on the trot, and he's right there, right now currently ranked number five in the welterweight official UFC rankings. Um, he's taken on Jorge Masvidal now, who's ranked number 12. And I think any other fighter ranked number five probably wouldn't take an opponent outside of the top 10. Uh, but you know, Cowboy being Cowboy and just wants to fight consistently and as far as often as possible, um, he'll just take the next available fight at the, the soonest possible date. Um, but I agree with you. I think um, a fifth straight win for Cowboy and he could be right in the running. I've got a sneaky, suspicious feeling that with Donald Cerrone fighting this weekend, should he win, I think that might set him up um, to, to, to take on perhaps a, a Nick Diaz maybe a Robbie Lawler um, or maybe even a Damian Meyer at one of the forthcoming big blockbuster pay-per-views we've got coming up in the next couple of months. We know that Cerrone likes to fight, um, you know, very, very quickly uh, on, on quick uh, succession. Um, and we know there's a lot of big, big name welterweights out there um, that are itching to get back into a big marquee fight. So, Again, if things go well for Cerrone this weekend, I think that'll set him up with a big, big um, marquee fight that I think could potentially be a, a title eliminator um, for whoever wins between uh, Woodley and Thompson. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to the fight. I think Jorge Masvidal is a game opponent. I think it's going to be a cracking fight. Uh, I'll, I will be picking Cerrone to win. I just think the guy's been on 
fantastic form. Um, and he's just, I think this is the right weight class for him. Um, he's got the experience. He's got all the tools and the, and the skill set. So um, I'll be picking Sorin to win this fight. He's a prime example of a fighter who has moved up to fighting his natural weight class and he's experiencing all of the benefits of doing so. He always looked quite tight at 155 pounds. He looks solid at 170. And I think we're seeing the best Donald Cerrone we've ever seen in the UFC. And that's saying something because he's delivered some some real eye-popping performances as a, as a lightweight, as a welterweight. I think he's on another level altogether. And uh, in that welterweight division, there are options galore. I mean, you put Donald Cowboy Cerrone opposite anybody in that UFC top 10, and you're going to get a great fight. You really are going to get a great fight. The fight, if I could just put my fantasy matchmaking hat on, and it's probably the least likely fight to happen because I'm sure they've trained together in the past, but the the thought of Cowboy Cerrone and Carlos Condit in a... And, I, you know, you'd put those two in a five-round Fox main event. That That would just be... You know, that's fight of the year material. Before you know, before a punch is thrown, you just know that that fight is going to deliver. And I think Cerrone Masvidal is going to deliver on Saturday night. Cerrone just delivers every time you put him in there. Masvidal, he's looking, he's looking to really make a statement. If he can beat Donald Cerrone in the form that Cerrone's in, then Masvidal is all of a sudden right up there and uh, needs to be taken incredibly seriously as a as a legit contender. Looking at legit contenders, we've got a former world champion taking on possibly the scariest European contender in any weight class right now. Andre Arlovsky, former UFC heavyweight champion, of course, taking on Francis Ngannou from France. And honestly, I can't I can't put into words just how impressed I was by Francis Ngannou's last performance. We didn't expect him to go out there and win by submission. No. He's, a, he's a knockout artist. Yes, he has he has won by submission before. He won back-to-back submissions before he got into the UFC. But this is at an altogether different level. And the manner in which he did it against Anthony Hamilton, who whose grappling isn't bad. He's you know, Anthony Hamilton is someone who's who's got a little bit of grappling in his game. And the way he just he basically kimurred him standing and then basically took him off his feet, took him to the floor, and it was just scary power. When you talk about scary power, normally you're talking punch power, but just the way he just grabbed another heavyweight's arm and was just able to literally drag him to the mat and finish him in an instant was, frankly, pretty terrifying for the rest of the UFC heavyweight division. He's still quite he's still quite raw. He's 9-1. But he's going in there with a, a very, very seasoned guy in Andre Arlovsky. Is this going to be Francis Ngannou's coming out party? Or is his momentum going to be checked a little bit on Saturday night? What do you reckon? I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about this matchmaking, to be honest, Si. Um, you've got Andre Arlovsky coming off three straight losses, two of them uh, by knockout, one by submission. Uh, and he's coming up against a young, hungry heavyweight in Francis Ngannou, who's undefeated in the UFC thus far, has been looking very, very scary. I mean, I think if Andre Loss is going to win, he'll, he'll have to use all of his veteran prowess and, and experience, um, because I think when it just comes to sheer um, manpower and skill, um, 
and ruthless aggression. I think Francis Ngannou has that in spades. He is a specimen of a man. Um, and so is Andrei Olovsky, to be fair. I mean, the, and we are talking about heavyweights here at the end of the day. And I guess from a rankings perspective, it makes sense. You know, Ngannou is number 10 right now. Olovsky is number 7. Um, but boy, um, have they kind of, um, you know, really given Andrei Olovsky um, a real big, big, tough uh, test here. I don't think it's going to go well for Olovsky, just given what, what you know, how he's performed in his last couple of outings. Um, and Ngannou is definitely the guy who's, who's on the up right now. Um, I'm definitely picking him to win this fight. Uh, this might even be Olovsky's last fight in the UFC. I mean, you know, the heavyweight division tends to keep a lot of these big names around because, you know, it's not exactly the, the deepest of divisions. But when you're coming off four straight losses, and again, if, if his loss to Ngannou is again uh, another uh, fin- a loss by finish, then that'll be four straight, you know. And what do you do then? Uh, it's a tough, tough uh, situation for Olofsky to be in. Uh, and again, we spoke about it earlier on the show, how so many guys that have been around the sport for such a long, long time, um, very few of them get to go out on their terms and on a win and on a high. So it'll be interesting to see um, what Arlovsky does, whether he wins or loses. Um, I'm definitely, definitely not picking against Nganu, at least not at this particular juncture in his career. I'll picking, I'm picking him to win by finish. Yeah, I've I've had the pleasure of watching Francis Ngannou fight live and in person, and as you say, he is as imposing a specimen as you'll see in the UFC. Uh, he fought on the same card as Derek Lewis, and uh, Derek Lewis is a big, big, scary man. Francis Ngannou is equally big, equally scary, but he also looks like he's been cut from rock. He's he's just he he looks like an action figure and. Uh, He's he's just he's just all power, but the way he went in there and showed additional layers to his game in his last fight makes me very excited for what he could potentially become in the UFC's heavyweight division. The danger here, of course, is you mentioned uh, it isn't the deepest of divisions, and if he gets past Andre Arlovsky, he's going to find himself running into more former world champions highly ranked guys, people who are very, very seasoned and perhaps have a little bit more of their career still to go than maybe Andre has. And uh, that's going to be when he comes up against the real tests because he's going to hit, he's going to come up against the real big hitters. Andre Arlovsky can still drop and finish a good number of the heavyweights in that, in that top 10. And, uh, you know, we remember, remember back to that fight with Travis Brown, which was just a wild brawl. And uh, he ended up winning that fight, one of the fights of the year, a couple of years back, uh, against Francis Ngannou, who we've never really seen get hit. That's the one thing I'm going to be looking out for. If Arlovsky can can beat Ngannou to the punch and land early, that's going to be an interesting an interesting thing to look out for because Arlovsky can 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 bang, and if he can land clean on Ngannou, it'll be interesting to see just how well the big Frenchman can can take a shot because he's going to need to be able to as he starts to move up the ranks. But like you, Sandu, I'm, I'm leaning towards Francis Ngannou for this one. I don't think it's going to go the distance, and uh, I think this could be the next rung on the ladder for a very, very exciting contender. The the final fight on the main card, Alex Caceres versus a guy, I don't think it's his official nickname, but Jason Knight uh, goes by the unofficial nickname of Hick Diaz, which is absolutely brilliant. 
Um, he likes to trash talk people during fights. Um, he doesn't mess around. Alex Caceres is obviously very flashy, very exciting to watch, and seems to be uh, seems to be improving as he goes along. He lost a split to Yair Rodriguez, and everyone's high on Yair uh, Rodriguez right now. Uh, he, he took him to a split decision. So we're seeing progression from Alex Caceres. Are you picking him to win this one, or do you think Jason Knight can upset the apple cart here? No, I like Caceres here. Um, I was actually uh, really impressed with his performance in the Yair Rodriguez fight, like you mentioned there, Simon. Um, he is the UFC veteran out of the two. Um, he's been around a little bit longer. Uh, he's got more pro fights under his belt. Um, uh, and this is a massive stage uh, for Jason Knight. This is going to be on Big Fox. This won't be on Fox Sports 1, um, so it'll be interesting to see um, how he handles um, uh, you know, a, a really big platform and stage like that. Um, and, uh, of course, Caceres, he's been in main events before, so he's been there, done that, bought the T-shirt. So I think um, experience will play a factor here, and I'll, I'm picking Caceres to win that fight. Yeah, interesting thing with Jason Knight, he's still very young, uh, yeah. 20, 24 years of age, decent record, and uh, his first fight in the UFC was against Tatsuya Kawajiri. That's a tough fight to make your debut in the UFC. He lost that one. Then he beat Jim Allers, former Cage Warriors champion, uh, and most recently beat Dan Hooker, and that's a good win. If you can beat Dan Hooker, that means you're on the way up. So a good win for Jason Knight. This, I think, is a bit of a sleeper for fight of the night. I think this could be a really, really exciting matchup. Um, interesting card placement as well, giving Caceres some, uh, some main card shine as well. When you consider... Yeah. The fights that we're about to mention. We won't go through the entire card in detail, but I do want to talk about the next two. Um, it's interesting to see that Caceres and Knight have been put on the main card because the two fights at the top of the Fox Sports 1 prelims have Nate Marquardt versus Sam Alvey at middleweight and perhaps more relevant uh, at bantamweight, Rafael Asuncao against Aljamain Sterling. They are two top-ranked guys at £135. And their sixth fight from the top of the card, which is quite remarkable. I would have thought that that fight would have been on the main card. I don't know what you think. That is a head-scratcher for me, Simon. I don't know uh, if Asunsai and Sterling have done anything to piss off uh, the UFC matchmakers uh, to get a placement like that. But that is a main card fight, if I've ever seen one. Um, and it's, it's shocking because you want to keep creating contenders in the bantamweight division, you want to make sure they get the biggest spotlight possible uh, to be able to tell their stories and give them a platform. Uh, and look, listen, Fox Sports One is still a great platform, but when it's a, a Fox main card where you're going to probably um, have some um, um, uh, leverage coming off some American football, um, which I think is going to be on uh, this weekend um, to to follow on from. Uh, I'm not 100% sure about that. I'm a Brit, so bear with me. Um, but uh, regardless, it is Big Fox. That's where you're going to get the most viewers. I'm surprised. I'm so, so surprised. Especially, uh, we, we just mentioned Alex Caceres and Jason Knight. You know, there's lots of fights that can be made by the way right now. Uh, I don't know how much upside there is of putting that particular fight on the main card. I think you'd have massive upside of putting Aston and Sterling on the main card. So regardless... Fantastic fight uh, for fight fans to, to, to watch. And this is a great, great card. Um, but yeah, that's a, a bit of a weird one, that placement. It is. I mean, the one thing you could you could sort of uh, mention in sort of pleas of litigation is they're both coming off defeats. Uh, Aljamain Sterling, first career loss, lost a split decision to Brian Carraway. 
Whereas uh, Rafael Asuncao had a seven-fight win streak beat, uh, sorry, snapped when he lost a unanimous decision to TJ Dillashaw back at UFC 200. So, but these are two guys who are ranked in the top 10 in the UFC bantamweight divisions. You know, Asuncao's number four, Sterling's number seven. It's a serious matchup. Um, I'm, I'm more than happy that we're getting this on this fight card. I think it's, I think if, if you're Fox Sports 1, you're delighted because yeah. you've got two great fights at the top of your broadcast. So, uh, Asuncao versus Sterling. Sunsell very seasoned. He's been around for a long time, and he's been there or thereabouts without ever getting that world championship shot. Aljamain Sterling, he's he's a personality. He's he's a good good fighter, but he's still developing as a fighter and he's still growing. And uh, we saw that in his in his loss to to Brian Caraway. Interesting to see how both of these men bounce back. If Sterling gets past the Sunsell, then he's straight back in there as a championship contender again. Let's talk about Nate Marquardt versus Sam Alvey. Marquardt has been around forever. Mm. You know, we talked about earlier on watching Tito Ortiz. It wasn't quite at the same stage as, as them, but it wasn't long after that I remember watching Nate Marquardt rising up the UFC welterweight division to the point where he was considered possibly the, the great pretender to George St. Pierre's throne at the top of the 170 pound division. That never really worked out for him. Uh, he went off to strike force for a bit where he destroyed Tyron Woodley. Go back and find a knockout of Tyron Woodley by Nate Marquardt in Strikeforce. Uh, that was an absolutely brutal finish, just blistering salvo of punches against the cage. Absolutely just crumbled, crumbled Tyron Woodley up against the fence. Go back and watch that if you can find it. He's fighting a guy with arguably the biggest smile and one of the biggest punches in the UFC middleweight division. Smiling Sam Alvey. He's married to a former American next top model. And uh, so I guess that's why he's smiling all the time. And uh, he's, uh, he's he's he, everywhere he goes, he's like a ray of sunshine. And uh, he's looking to claim yet another win as uh, as he looks to keep himself as relevant as possible in that 185 pound division. What do you make of it, Sandy? Yeah, I don't fancy Nate Marquardt's chances in this fight. Um, like you've mentioned, smiling Sam Alvey has a lot of power in his punches. Now, Marquardt, when he loses, it seems to be um, the chin uh, that gets wobbled and down he goes fairly easily, especially uh, in this latter part of his career. Now, in the last couple of fights, he has been able to get knockout wins of his own. Um, the one against Townsend McCory was a bit of a weird one. I just don't think the barn cat was all there, to be honest with you. I don't think he should have been in there at all. Um, I think, uh, considering he's had over 50 fights himself, uh, perhaps he was a little... Uh, I think maybe his chin had gone a little bit as well. Um, but uh, I'm really favouring Alvi in this fight. Uh, I think the minute he touches uh, Mark Hart's chin, uh, I think uh, the former um, welterweight contender is going to be going down fairly easily. Um, and, you know, he's he's had a couple of wins lately, but over the course of the last 10 or so fights, he's lost seven. Uh, and when he's lost, the majority of them has has you know, been by knockout. So, um, not fancying his chances. Yeah, you, you sort of go down his record and I think the Jake Allenberger and Hector Lombard back-to-back knockouts um, during the, uh, during during 2013 sort of probably started started the slide, really. He lost the decision to Tarek Safadine before that, but that was just a decision. So, since then, he's been TKO'd by Kelvin Gastelum. He's been knocked out by Thiago Santos. Um 
His last two wins have both been by KO. So you've got to respect the guy's power. And that's the one thing that Sam Alvey will have to be wary of. But if you've got someone whose main main route to victory is a knockout and you're going up against Sam Alvey, I think that, that, that just all adds up to it being an exciting fight. Someone is probably going to get sparked out in this fight. Smart <laughs> money suggests that it might be Nate just because it doesn't seem like he has the same punch resistance that he had maybe four or five years ago. Uh, he's certainly as well-rounded as they come. He's excellent on the mat as well as on the feet. But right now it seems like he uh, he needs to go out there and somehow knock out Sam Alvey. If he does, then that's going to be a huge win for him. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that one, but I, I'm, not, I'm not optimistic for Nate the Great Marquardt. I think Sam Alvey may have that one. We've got we've got a host of fights below those two on the Fox Sports One card. We've got a couple of USC Fight Pass prelims, and and before we move on from this, Sandu, I think it's it's worth it's worth just uh, leaving a little note at this point uh, for for Eric Winter, the former vice president and general manager of USC Fight Pass, who this week announced he was leaving the UFC, which came as a, a huge shock. Um, Eric has been a, a big big friend to to us guys in our little media bubble that we work in, uh, whenever we've been on the road and he's been around, he's always been incredibly accommodating, uh, quite often meets us for a beer at some point, or, you know, we'll go for a bite to eat. Um, someone who, who gets it, he gets the business and he came in for those who don't know Eric's background. Um, he's, he's a serious big hitter in this business and he used to run Yahoo sports. He's worked in, uh, in, in, on the cable side of things as well. He struck a lot of deals with the UFC back in those days. He actually got, he, he did a big deal with the UFC on Yahoo Sports back in the day. They brought him on to run UFC Fight Pass and they tur- turned what was a bit of a flaky initial launch into a really well-produced, slick platform. They've got a host of uh, promotions, live streaming events on there. You've got unique content on there. It's now a product worthy of the name and worthy of a monthly subscription, whereas perhaps when it launched, it maybe wasn't. Uh, And a lot of that is down to the driving force of Eric Winter, who not only has obviously led the brand and led the product forward, has been very public-facing with it. He's been more than happy to engage with fans on social media. He held regular... um, uh, Emporiums, is that the word I'm thinking of? But... um, he basically held held these fan meetings where he'd get 50 to 100 fans, sit them down, and just field suggestions and questions from them. Whenever like a user was, meeting. Yeah, it was like a huge focus group thing. And he used to yeah. do it whenever he went on the road. He used to he used to set these things up. And that is one of the things that, that helped take Fight Pass to the next level. It means that Fight Pass as a product is something that's much more in tune with what, with what the fans wanted to see. Um as I say, he's been he's been he's been great for me personally to to get to know him, and uh, it's I think it's a real shame that the UFC are losing him. He said he's going to go and spend some more time with his family, and uh, you know you can't begrudge him that. So uh, we wish him all the best here at at the Brit Pack. Uh, yeah, I mean uh, I'm not in the rat race of breaking news, uh, but I actually was the one that did break this particular one, um, and it's just one of those um, weird ones where you know. Where you, me, are in our career, Simon, we're connected 
with a lot of people in the industry through a lot of different social media platforms. It could be Instagram, it could be Twitter, it could be Facebook, it could be LinkedIn, uh, Snapchat. There's a lot, of, a lot of ways we're connected with fighters and agents and people in the business. And, and I just happened to be kind of scrolling through my Facebook feed and he had, he had just posted his message and that was the platform he chose um, to announce his departure from the UFC and I was the first one to see it. So I obviously uh, broke that particular bit of news. But that's beside the point. I mean, for me, Again, a part of the gig here, Simon, is for us to speculate. Uh, and again, I'm just speculating here. I've got a feeling, just given um, what we know um, and how well we have got to know Eric over the years, I think this is a premature departure. I, th I think he had a lot of plans, a lot of things that he wanted to do with the service and with the product. A lot of things. Um, I think uh, with, 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 the, with WME IMG making a lot of cuts, over the course of the last six, six or so months and a lot of um, top-level executives and a lot of staff um, being fired. We have seen a lot of executives go of their own, uh, uh, you know, leave on their own accord, quote-unquote, but that may have just been a, a goodwill gesture by WMEIMG to allow them to exit in that manner. Um, again, that is my speculation. Officially, officially, it's Eric that's announced that he's leaving, um, and that's his decision. So that's all we can go by, right? But a part of the gig here is to speculate. Now, with that being said, um, I concur with everything you said about him um, and what he's done, um, not only with the, the product and the service and uh, what he's turned UFC Fight Pass into, but yeah, he was a great character to be around in the business and in the industry, especially uh, for the European media guys, because a lot of the European shows uh, were the, the, the Fight Pass exclusives. Um, and it does make me start to think what are WME IMG's plans for UFC Fight Pass moving forward. Now, what we've seen over the last couple of years is we started to see the featured Fight Pass prelim get a lot of shine, get a lot of promotion with the two fighters that were involved in that particular slot. Now, looking at this particular UFC Fight Pass featured prelim, it's Marcus Rogerio de Lima versus Jeremy Kimball. I haven't got a clue about their story, Simon. I don't know anything about their uh, background, their past, unless I do some serious uh, digging here, right? Um, and from a casual fan uh, perspective, there's been no build-up. So that's a, a big red flag for me, where uh, for a certain um, period of time, they had started to turn things around by having a very well-promoted uh, Fight Pass featured prelim. That's now gone. I haven't really seen that a lot lately, right? So now with Eric obviously departing, we haven't heard anything about his potential replacement. Um, we don't know what the future plans are for UFC Fight Pass. And again, this could all be packaged into the long-term strategy with the TV rights being up for grabs by um, the end of the year. Whether they take the two or three uh, Fight Pass exclusive events uh, that used to be a part of the offering and actually turn them into part of the overall TV package or the pay-per-view uh, numbers. There's so many things that are going on um, and that will be going on this year. Um, and, and who knows if Fight Pass is even going to still be around or whether they're going to use it for, uh, as a platform uh, to try and get other content partners involved with. Uh, so it's interesting times. Um, um, but it, it, it is a constant stream of revenue for the business, you know, um, and, uh, and the only thing we can compare it to is the WWE Network, which got off to a bit of a slow start, but now 
that network is really starting to come into its own. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a subscriber. Um, I watch a lot of the content there. Um, and uh, and they've got over 1.5 million subscribers, which is a great number. Uh, and they're still expanding into new territories. They're still adding a lot more content to the network. So that's a that's more of a kind of, I suppose, um, uh, piece on the actual product and the service moving forward. But to bring it back to, to Eric Winter, I think his legacy is... Um, is well intact uh, in a positive state in terms of what he was able to do in the short amount of time he was with the company um, and the task he had, especially when it's a brand new product just being launched. So uh, tip the hat to Eric Winter and hopefully we'll see him somewhere down the road. Absolutely. And, you know, you made some really good points about, about Fight Pass and its potential future as a platform. And one of the big things with the WMIMG uh, acquisition of the UFC is they're now in a position where they're looking to maximize their revenue. And the TV deal is probably the number one thing. Pay-per-view is a strand that they have, and they're, you know, they're going to look to maintain that one, would assume. It's their main revenue generator. But the next thing has got to be the linear TV deal. Now, they're going to be asking probably for a, a, fair, a fair whack more money than last time round because they're, you know, they've got $4.2 billion dollars to try and recoup so they need to value their their broadcast rights as high as they can now if you're offering exactly the same product then that's a tricky that's a tricky sell um what you can do obviously is you can you can create more value and maybe i don't know how much value you can create by adding a couple of extra fights to the to the uh to the pot each time but the other thing of course is they're looking to cut costs and usc fight pass I would think costs a reasonable amount of money to run. Um, there's an awful amount of of upkeep and, and hosting and storage and all that sort of stuff that would need to be done. There's a lot of uh, uh, an awful lot of work that goes in. Certainly when they when they initially acquire the rights to a promotion, take the old Cage Rage archives for example. A lot of those came in on VHS tapes, I believe. Yeah. So you can imagine. They've got to remaster all that footage. They've then got to catalog it. They've then got to arrange it. They've got to transcode it. They've got to get it up onto a server, and then they've got to package it together. So, And they've got countless promotions. The big question, and of course we don't know the answer to this, how many people are watching these things? Mm-hmm. That's what we don't know. Obviously the live events that are actually UFC events have a certain, certain gravitas to them because they're a UFC event, and they're leading in to either a big Fox event or a pay-per-view event in many cases. But some of these other events, particularly the smaller ones, I mean, shows like Cage Warriors and things like that, you would think would get a relatively healthy viewership because they're a well-known, established brand. But take something like the Alaska Fighting Championships, for example. I'd be interested to know how many people are watching it. Or EFN. Or EFN. You know, EFN, although the the one EFN show I did watch was batshit mental at one point there was a spider came out a big giant metal spider it was just the most bizarre thing compare that with ACB they're both from the same territory ACB no messing about they've got the fighters in the cage for the next fight before the, the you know the fighters from the previous fight have left it's almost that fast then you've got EFM which is it's it's like going to some sort of psychedelic musical it's bizarre but um, it was it was nuts but I get, as you say, I don't know how many people are watching these things and how much value it's bringing. So there's probably a cost-benefit analysis going on with UFC Fight Pass right now. Yeah. Or either that or it's happened. And uh, one final note, just on a personal note, before we move on from this, um, 
I'm sure those those who listen to the show regularly are aware of my current uh, employment situation and what you know. I I, I departed the Sun a few weeks back. Um, I posted on Facebook, and the very first person to contact me was Eric Winter. Asked me for my phone number because he didn't have it, and he, he he was driving his car. I don't know where he was in California, I suppose. And he rang me and spent half an hour on the phone to me. There and then. I'd literally just posted. He hadn't even read the Facebook post. He just saw the first three lines. Got the gist of where I was going with it. Rang me up. Spent half an hour on the phone in his car in California. Uh, that's a measure of the guy. You know, that's, that's you know, a class a class individual and, uh, you know, a good a good guy. And I wish him all the best. So uh, hopefully, hopefully he stays in the fight game because uh, it would be a shame to lose him completely. But uh, we wish him the best. As he moves on, as I think we should probably move on as well, Sandy. We're probably looking at Q and A time now, aren't we? Is it time? Is it time for some questions? It certainly is, Simon. Um, once again, a reminder to everyone listening: if you want to get in touch with us uh, throughout the week, um, it's at the Britpack MMA. Uh, that's where you can find us on Twitter. Send us your questions. Um, when you get a like from the Britpack MMA handle, that's when you know um, we'll include it. Now, the first question this week comes from uh, James. Um, he actually starts off by saying, I'm still waiting for my question uh, to get answered from a few weeks ago. Um, <laughs> and I did, I did tweet him back saying, well, did you actually uh, copy in the official Britpack MMA Twitter handle? And evidently, I don't think he did. Having said that, though, I made a special note to put that question aside to answer it, uh, to ask it in, uh, rather on this week's show. So, so James um, wanted to find out our thoughts on Michelle Watson. Um, only getting 15 and 15 uh, for her performance against Paige Van Zandt um, on the big Fox card towards the uh, the end of 2016. And f- for, for me, Sam, I don't, know, I don't know how you feel about it, but um, first and foremost, um, the fighters are responsible for the contracts that they sign, right? So they know what they're going to get, what their what their value is. And, and maybe things have changed now with WME IMG uh, coming into play uh, over the course of the last six, seven months where... We were aware of the discretionary white envelope bonuses that were getting paid by the Fatita brothers back in the day. Maybe that's all gone now under WME IMG. Maybe now, literally, whatever your contracted um, earnings are for to show and to win, that is it. Aside from, of course, um, some of the the performance of the right bonuses, um, which you could potentially earn as well. Um, should she be getting paid more? 100%. We're always... Um, um, down for all the fires uh, to get uh, as, as big a piece of the pie as they possibly can. Um, but at the end of the day, this is again a part of the uh, the process of the sport moving forward. Unless you've got a bargaining uh, chip on the table, unless you can collectively get together as fighters um, and negotiate better deals for yourself, uh, whilst you're still doing it on an individual one-to-one basis, when it's just you and your agent and your manager with the promotion, um, it will come down to whether you're willing to um, really negotiate hard and play free agency, what the market value is at the time. Um, you know, there aren't you know, a lot of companies out there, promotions that are willing to uh, afford to pay you um, the, big, the big bucks. I mean, outside of the UFC, it's really Bellator and even Bellator. You know, I know that they're close to potentially um, giving uh, Ryan Bader a final uh, offer or at least an initial offer to, to work with um, but they were also um, bullish in saying that they weren't going to pursue anything w- with Lorenz Larkin 
who is a, who is a, also a free agent. So sometimes that can backfire on you. You know, Lorenz, I'm assuming, wanted to test the, the, the free agency market, thinking that Bellator might come in with a, a pretty attractive offer. But going back to the initial question, Michelle Watson, 15 and 15, in a main event, uh, it was a, a marquee win for her. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm hoping that the UFC perhaps would give her a new uh, contract because that is a division that she could really thrive in. It's a great story. Um, being the karate hearty, being a mother, um, and being um, you know also a relative pioneer in the sport. She's been around for quite some time. Um, but that's my thoughts on it, Simon. Your your take on uh, Michelle Watson getting fifteen and fifteen for her last outing? Yeah, well, I'm, it's it's easy to forget this. This was only her second fight in the UFC. Yeah. Um, obviously, she's a name that that those of us who've been following the sport for a while know, and have probably been following from before she joined the UFC. But this is actually only her second fight, so. Quite often, it's a case of just getting into the show first. Get yourself in, sign a two or three fight deal, then you negotiate up from there. And uh, whether it was a two or three fight deal, I, th- I certainly think she's proved her worth to the UFC. If she's main eventing, she should be on more than 15 and 15. But as you say, that's the contract she's on. You would like to think that now, you know, the time is right for her to start getting some better money. If she's going to be taking on some, some, some top-ranked fighters and getting into championship contention as well, then, uh, then you know, there's even more reason. And the other thing about it, you know, we talk, we, it's kind of a running theme through, through our shows since the, since the takeover by WMEIMG. This sport, more than ever, is all about building stars. And Michelle Waterson is, is for me, a star in the making. She, she ticks so many, so many of the boxes for what, could really work as a crossover star. Um, I don't think I know anybody who I couldn't sit in front of that Fight Mom uh, documentary that they made. I think it was uh, Uninterrupted made it with her. It's now on UFC Fight Pass, by the way. You can watch it on there as well now. Um, the documentary about Michelle Waterson. I don't think you could sit anyone in front of that and then come away from watching that and not be a Michelle Waterson fan. She's just such a, a natural, engaging... Uh, positive person and she goes in there and you know she fights brilliantly she's won both her fights in the UFC by submission and her nickname is the Karate Hottie but she's winning by she, you know she's winning using Jiu Jitsu um, she picked up a bonus in her last fight hopefully her next fight onwards she'll be earning a few more dollars in a, a regular pay packet as well but um I can kind of understand why she was on 15 and 15 at that time, but you'd like to think that she won't be next time she steps into the cage. Sean Condren uh, tweets in asking about Bellator being uh, shown live in the UK. And we touched on this a little bit earlier on the show. It's unfortunate. We want it. Uh, We know there's a massive hardcore MMA community here in the UK that uh, are definitely willing to, to give up their Saturday nights to watch MMA. Um, I'm sure uh, the guys at Bellator want to get this done, uh, but it is something that John Slusser, who is the uh, Spike executive, mentioned in the post-fight press conference on the weekend. They have individual deals with various territories and different markets. Um, So, for example, uh, this past weekend's Bellator 170 uh, event was actually shown live in about 50% of the markets they have um, deals set up with and in the other 50% it was on some sort of tape delay 
In some cases, it's a matter of hours, matter of days. For the case of us here in the UK, it's a week. Is it ideal? No, it's not. Because you want to watch um, every sport live. Uh, tape delay just doesn't work. Uh, especially in 2017, when people want to engage and interact and talk to friends um, online, on Twitter and social media and what have you. Um, it's something that I know that you, me, Simon, we're going to constantly keep bringing up when we see um, the Bellator PI uh, guys pop over here uh, to the UK. Um, and I suppose the only thing um, that the fans can do is keep making some noise about it. You know, let them know, um, find out their handles, the Bellator and the Spike handles, you know, at Scott Coker. Let them know um, the frustrations uh, of not being able to watch their product live. It, I suppose for them it's a good problem to have because it shows that there are fans here that do want to watch their fights live. Um, hopefully, fingers crossed, this is the year that they can finally get it done, whether that's with Channel 5, whether that's with Spike UK, whether they can, you know, parlay that with some of the big Bama events that are being um, shown on TV here in the UK, that would be uh, the thing that I think makes the most sense. Um, but yeah, um, at, the, at the moment, it's still on a, on a week-by-week -week tape delay, which is just unfortunate. Yeah, I, I, I received a few messages, as, as, as I'm sure you did as well, Sandu, during the night, and someone said, but they're only showing teleshopping right now, which was true. They were showing teleshopping, but... As while the majority of us think that teleshopping tele is an absolute waste of time and a pile of crap and is literally just a space filler, a contract will have been signed for that teleshopping to be there. So in order to then get rid of that, you either got to wait for the contract to expire or you've then probably got to negotiate your way out of it in order that you can put something else in there. So it's not just a case of bin that, put this in instead. As much as that would be easy to do, um, if, if if there were no contracts involved, there are contracts involved in these things. So it's uh, it's it's a tricky situation. And having worked at BT Sport, and I've spoken to the schedulers there on many occasions, especially early on when I was helping them to implement getting the Ultimate Fighter shown um, as a simulcast with US TV and things like that. And we were looking at what was on the schedule. I'm like, okay, surely you can move this. And they're like. Yes, we can move this, but we can't move that. And it was all about contract, uh, sorry, con, uh, contractual things. And there are certain things that, that that could be moved and things that couldn't. But when it comes to things like tele shopping or uh, super casino and things like that that you get on ITV, these things are bought and paid for to be in a certain time on a certain channel. So it's not it's not as easy to just bin them off, which is a shame. Because I'd, I'd much rather watch live fights than someone trying to flog a diamond necklace. But, <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's what they have. So uh, I think we need to be a little bit patient. Maybe there's an interim solution. Maybe they can they can stream it. That's one thing that could potentially happen. Uh, maybe they could investigate that. But uh, as you say, Sandu, it's it's something that we'll we'll certainly chat to the uh, the Bellator execs about next time they're over here in the UK and. Uh, We'll will certainly make uh, make our, our fellow British fans' voices heard on on that front, and uh, if it if it helps, then fantastic. But I'm sure it's something that's on their on their radar already. Uh, Sunny Danjal tweets in and says, "Do you think Bellator will sign Mike Goldberg?" Uh, and he compares it to WCW back in the day <laughs> signing 
Bobby the Brain Heenan, which is a interesting comparison. Um, I, I think so. I think, I mean, if I'm Bellator, um, I'm signing Mike Goldberg, even if that means them having to create a three-man commentary team. I think Mike Goldberg, um, there's a lot of familiarity there. Uh, with MMA fans, they're used to his voice. They're used to um, his spiel and the way he, you know, pr- pr- provides the presentation. Um, uh, and I think he'll be—he's uh, got a lot of experience, you know. And um, uh, you know, obviously, you know, now that he's out of the gig with the UFC, he's you know essentially a free agent. So I don't think you'd be—you'd have to break the bank too much to sign him because I don't know what other gigs he's got lined up, right? Um, so yeah, I think it'd be a pretty decent move. Uh, for Bellator to sign him, so yeah, I absolutely agree. Simon, what do you think? Yeah, I do. I the uh, I think the the main play by play guy for Bellator right now is a guy called Sean Grande, who it's kind of like a side gig for him. His main gig is as the play by play guy for the Boston Celtics in in the NBA. That's his gig. He's the voice of the Boston Celtics, and uh, he does a bit of Bellator on the side. Um, and uh, he's not the first guy they've had. They've gone through a few different commentators. Sean Wheelock used to do it. He used to be quite good, Sean Wheelock. I didn't mind him. Um, and uh, I, I think, and of course, John Anik back in the day used to commentate play by play for Bellator MMA back in the old tournament days. So they've been through a few play by play guys. But what they don't have, in my opinion, and, and with all due respect to Sean, who's in position right now, they've not got that sort of iconic voice and I think while a lot of people have been very quick to to give Mike Goldberg some stick down the years I think it would be widely widely applauded and widely welcomed if they got Jimmy Smith and uh, Mike Goldberg side by side in the commentary booth for Bellator MMA events I think it would be I think it would actually make for a really good high energy commentary team I think they would work really well together I think it would elevate the fights, and uh, I think I think it would work. and And uh, it was interesting hosting the uh, the Bellator MMA prelims was Jen Brown, who uh, regular fighters of UFC Fight Pass will recognise. She was a regular host of UFC Now, and she was very much uh, open in the way that she was saying how pleased she was to have joined the Bellator family. So I, I'm guessing that's another person who's left UFC Fight Pass, Sandu. So. You know, maybe the theory about Fight Pass being maybe marginalised or run down might not be too far from the truth. Jen Brown, one of the main presenters on on one of the bigger shows on UFC Fight Pass, has left and is now hosting the Bellator MMA prelims and will be doing so on an ongoing capacity moving forward. She was very clear to say that as well. But in terms of uh, Mike Goldberg, absolutely, get him in. Get him in as soon as possible. I think that would be a a no-brainer signing for them. RG tweets in and says, I hesitate to ask, but, but thoughts <laughs> thoughts on the T-word race issue. So for anyone that um, uh, hasn't heard or, or read um, some of the comments that Tyron Woodley made in, a, in, a, in an interview with ESPN last week, he said the two main takeaways and the two main sound bites were, were him basically saying, that he felt as though he was the worst treated champion in UFC history, and essentially um, he cited the the complexion of his skin um, as being um, one of the causes for it. So, you know, 
really, really sensitive topic and issue to to try and dissect and talk about. But just initially, Simon, what were your initial reactions to hearing him say those things in that interview? Well, the thing with racism, and, and it's something that a lot of people get wrong about racism, it's not it's not about whether you think it's racist. It's about what the person on the receiving end makes of it. Um, are they feeling marginalised? Is the person who feel... do Does that person think they're being marginalised, first off? Do they think they're being marginalised as a result of whether it be their colour, whether it be their gender, whether it be... Whatever it is, their, their, their you know their sexuality, whatever, or even their nationality, whatever it may be, it's about how they're made to feel by the by by the situation they're in. And in Tyron Woodley's in Tyron Woodley's situation, clearly, he feels that there's 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 something there's something up here. Now, just because it might not be overtly um, apparent, that doesn't mean it it isn't true. So and and. I know that he will have. He probably would have received a torrent of abuse on Twitter for it. Um, but Tyron Woodley, from all my interactions with him, and from everything I've seen of him in the sport, he's a class act. He's a class act as a fighter, and he's a, he's a class act outside of the cage as well. And he doesn't strike me as someone who would say something without thinking very carefully about it first. The one thing we don't know is why he feels this way. And I think that's the missing piece here. If he can articulate, and as we were going on air, I think he was being interviewed by 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 Ariel. So maybe he has had the opportunity to to put some meat on the bones a little bit and explain things a little bit clearer. But I think if he's able to do that, people will hopefully be able to better understand his position. But it's not for it's not for for you or me to judge how he feels. Um, if, if that's how he feels, that's how he feels. But if he wants to put a tag on it in any way, then it's helpful for him to, to give context to that. And mm. I think that's maybe the one thing that we're missing. But anything other than that, I think, is kind of conjecture. And, you know, everybody's within their rights to feel to feel however they feel about a given situation. But the important thing is that if you're going to go public on something and you're going to, you, you know, you're going to make what almost stands as an accusation. He said he was the worst treated champion in UFC history. I think it's it's, it's realistic for people to understand why he said that. Um, yeah. So, and whether that particular statement also ties in with his, his race comments or whether that is just a separate statement because he made a lot of, he made a lot of statements and it's just, mm. just to understand the overall context of everything uh, Tyron's a very articulate guy. I think he would have thought very carefully about what he'd said. Um, Wonderboy Thompson is a very respectful guy. He certainly was taken taken off guard by the comments as well. And it's, he said it wasn't something that he'd, he'd felt aware of. Mm. Um, but just because someone's not aware of it doesn't mean it's not happening. So I think I think the best thing for all concerned is, is if Tyron is able to better explain and... Uh, contextualize what he's saying then i think that will help going forward because if there are issues if he can give context and detail to it that means that hopefully we you know as a as a sport things can be can be sort of moved forward and things can be improved from that point on if that makes sense does that make sense it does and i'll weigh in with a few thoughts um myself and 
I thought it was really. Bra- I mean, if this is how he really feels uh, deep down, I thought it was very brave of him to speak up about it. First of all, I think there's a lot of people, especially uh, in a high-profile situation, uh, you you just become the UFC champion. Uh, you know, this is where he's going to really start to make some of the biggest paydays of his of his career now, uh, and to speak up about it at, at this stage of his career rather than ten fights ago. Um, is a is a very brave thing to do first and foremost i thought it was very interesting uh to see him use the espn interview platform uh to 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 say something like that this is not some uh youtube channel or some a little blog um or some local outlet in las vegas this is espn it's one of the biggest sports um media outlets slash networks in the world you know everyone's going to pick up on this um, so I thought that was very interesting. Uh, I kind of kind of find it uh, um, fascinating to see some of the uh, the online reaction from the MMA community and the fans to it. I think had this been Tyron Woodley with eight successful uh, title defenses against the top ranked opponents uh, in a row that had said that, I think there would have been a vastly different uh, reaction from the MMA community. The fact that this is uh, a fighter and a champion who's making these statements now, having uh, come off uh, a draw in his first title defense against Steve Wonder by Thompson, and in the interim before the rematch was announced, was almost um, vying for uh, matches with George St. Pierre and Nick Diaz and even Michael Bisping at a catchweight, which didn't go down too well. Um, I think he certainly um, is, is uh, I think... He's, he's, he's almost kind of been dropped into the heel role, which I think he's actually been playing really well himself in terms of um, declining the match so much, the rematch with Wonderboy Thompson, where the MMA community was almost, you know, um, really demanding it. And then when the, the match finally got announced, it was like, great, yes, we can't wait to see it now because that's what we really want to see is the rematch. So we built up the demand for it. Um, this is going to be fascinating. The, the build-up to UFC 209 is going to be fascinating because this is going to be a major storyline. And, and we're still a couple of months out uh, before these two get it on. This is just the start of the the promotion. There's going to be tons of interviews. I'm sure there'll be a lot of back and forth. Um, it'll be interesting, interesting to see um, what Dana White's comments are on this. I'm sure at some stage some reporter uh, will get the opportunity to ask him about Tyron Woodley's comments. Um, and and he's and he's and he's backing it up now. He's doing more interviews, like you said. Um, he just done the MMA Hour with Ariel Helwani today. Uh, I'm sure other outlets will follow up on that, um, dig a little bit deeper. And like you said, he's a smart lad. Um, he's also an analyst on Fox Sports. Um, so we'll see if he uses um, um, some of his uh, situations, whether it's his vlog, personal blog on the YouTube channel or um, his role on Fox Sports, to uh, further articulate and express. Um, his situation. Plus, we'll see if other champions like Daniel Cormier uh, come out and perhaps reinforce some of his statements, or if Demetrius Johnson comes out and reinforces some of his uh, statements, or whether he'll be kind of left alone in that spotlight to kind of really carry the flag for that particular feeling. And again, I'll go back to the idea of if that's how he really feels, um, that's absolutely uh, a brave situation uh, for him to to be able to come out like that. But I also agree with you, Simon. Um, but if this is how he feels, I would like to see some uh, examples um, of of how he feels like this, what specific incidents happened uh, to make him feel like the worst street champion in the UFC. Um, so I think this is just the beginning. 
uh, of this particular um, storyline uh, and situation regarding um, Woodley um, essentially using the race card uh, in regards to how he feels um, he's been treated um, as a UFC champion. Right, so uh, uh, we'll let's now move on. Uh, we've spoken about him a little bit uh, earlier on uh, because he is fighting this weekend. Uh, but is the beast, Francis Ngannou, alone the future of the heavyweight division? Slim pickings, Lewis is not for me. And that from that's from uh, GJ Jitsu. Um, I don't know if it's slim pickings. And, uh, and I'm definitely a big fan of Derek Lewis. I do feel as though there are a couple of guys, and, and maybe Lewis and Ngannou are the two, that come to mind straight away, that, that I feel as though are, are right there. They're on the come up uh, in the heavyweight division. Um, they're two behemoths um, of men um, who can do some serious damage there. And at the other end of the scale, you're seeing a lot of, uh, of the veterans um, getting up there in age. Um, their chins are getting a little bit weaker. Uh, you've got people like Cain Velasquez, who's very, very injury prone and can't fight um, that consistently anymore. Um, but but what do you think, Simon? Francis Ngannou, your overall um, State of the Union address on the heavyweight division and also Derek Lewis. Derek Lewis is a factor. No no doubt about it, Derek Lewis is a factor. Francis Ngannou is probably the most interesting interesting prospect in the UFC heavyweight division right now. I wouldn't rule out Stefan Struve at this point either. He's, uh, he's incredibly experienced, but he's still relatively young in terms of the heavyweight division. But for me, the three, the three people who you really need to be keeping an eye on as potential heavyweight world champions all reside outside of the heavyweight division. John Jones, Daniel Cormier, Anthony Rumble Johnson. Any one, two or three of those could jump into that heavyweight division and become a championship contender instantly. Instantly. And you wouldn't bet against them going right to the top and winning championship gold. And I think... The future for all three of those guys really probably lies at heavyweight eventually. So I think, yeah, we're looking at do we need new fresh blood in, in, in the UFC heavyweight division? And undoubtedly we do. But I think the three names that are probably going to provide that are currently right at the top of the UFC light heavyweight division. So I think eventually John Jones, when he comes back, I think he's got some unfinished business at light heavyweight he wants to attend to, but then he wants to jump to heavyweight. Anthony Rumble Johnson has made no secret of the fact he, he fancy a crack at heavyweight. And Daniel Cormier's best weight is probably at heavyweight. So particularly when you look at Cain Velasquez's situation, we don't know how he's going to come back from his injury, whether he's going to be able to compete at the same level. He's had an awful lot of injuries in his career. If Cain Velasquez were to call it a day within the next 12 to 18 months... I think the door will be wide open for Daniel Cormier to jump into that heavyweight division and become an instant championship contender. So, um, And it's only his respect and friendship with Cain Velasquez that sent him down to light heavy in the first place because they didn't want to tread on each other's toes out of respect. So I think Cormier, Johnson and uh, Jones are the future of the UFC heavyweight division. They're just not in there yet. Sean tweets it and says, Do you think Paddy Pimblett makes it into the UFC by the end of the year? I like to think so. I think if he if he stays the course um, and he gets a couple of a uh, couple of more wins this year under the Cage Warriors banner, uh, defends his, uh, his his featherweight championship, then absolutely. Uh, the whole uh, point 
in this game is to make it to the top, make it to the UFC. He's done very well in terms of marketing himself. So I think he'll be in a pretty decent position um, when he does start negotiations with the UFC. Perhaps there's already a deal in place. You know, Cage Warriors is already on the UFC Fight Pass platform. Um, he's able to get some, uh, some, some, some fights in as a champion this year. They need him. They, they, he just signed a brand new contract with Cage Warriors. Um, so, yeah, if I'm a betting man, I think by the end of 2017, you're looking at Paddy Pimblett as a UFC fighter. It was interesting because you see it in, in, in football a lot. You see loan deals where guys will get signed by a Premier League club from a championship club, but immediately loan straight back to the club that they were bought from. And it, you do wonder whether that's the sort of thing that might have happened here. Um, there was talk, I believe, when, when the signing was announced, Graham Boylan, who's the president of Cage Warriors, said that Paddy Pimblett was the highest paid British fighter outside the UFC. I think that's what he said. Um, and uh, that suggests, obviously, he's earning some good money. He's earning some decent money. Uh, and, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. That's got to come from somewhere. Um, maybe maybe we've we've had a situation there where we've got sort of a loan back situation where maybe the UFC might be footing the bill for, for, for Paddy Pimblett and just nurturing him at Cage Warriors level for another eight to 12 months and then moving him up towards the end of the year. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how the European calendar pans out as we go through the year. We were sort of speculating before we went on air as to where we might end up, what, what, what cities we might go to and, and where in the year it would be very interesting to see how things pan out. But if we've got a, a UK or Irish show towards the back end of the year, that would seem to me like the ideal place to introduce Paddy Pimblett as a UFC debutant. So, um, of course, he's still got to do the business inside the Cage Warriors cage, but um, he's, he's, he's shown he's got all the ability and talent to do that. So um, it'd be nice to see him in there eventually, for sure. More, you know, The more talented British fighters we can get applying their trade at the highest level, the better. Rajan Shergill tweets in and says, any news on the main uh, co-main events of UFC London? Uh, there's only 10 bouts so far, so expecting two more. Now, uh, we've been answering these questions about uh, potential UFC London main events for a few weeks, and um, I was dead certain that we were going to get a gay god Musasi versus uh, um, uh, an either-or of Chris Weidman um, or Luke Rockhold. Now, the UFC, <laughs> funnily enough, on Friday morning, uh, the, the European Twitter handle was announcing UFC uh, uh, fights for the London card left, right and centre on Friday morning. And then on Friday um, afternoon, um, I just saw a flash of Gegard Musasi versus Chris Weidman. And my mind was so in tune with the European handle uh, announcing more cards for the London event that I just assumed... Uh, instantly, with a, with a quick flash on my phone, that oh great, they've announced uh, Weidman Masasi for London, fantastic! And I tweeted it out, and then I immediately got uh, a whole bundle of people saying, uh, "FYI, that's for UFC 210 in oh, no. New York, not for London." And I'm like, right, I've cocked up here, um, so I had to delete that tweet and then you know do start from scratch. Um, but that's where my that's where my head was at, Simon. We've been yeah. speaking about it for a few weeks, and I genuinely thought that was the best fight that they could put, uh, possibly uh, put on uh, for the London main event. It would have made sense. I would have been happy with that main event. Um, uh, but yeah, 
the UFC announced uh, a lot of fights uh, that are now official uh, last Friday morning, but we still don't have an official main event. To be honest with you, I am scratching my head a little bit. Uh, I, I guess they could potentially go for Alexander Gustafsson. Um, he is coming off a back injury. Um, he hasn't fought for a while. Um, I think perhaps a lot will depend on this whole Ryan Bader situation. Um, but tickets do go on sale this week, Simon. And we still don't have a main event. Now, that hasn't stopped the UFC uh, from going ahead um, with uh, with the you know tickets going on sale without an official main event uh, being listed. Um, but right now, where is your head at? What do you think we're potentially uh, in line to get as a main event for the London card? If I said I knew, I'd be lying. I've, I've racked my brains for a couple of options. Gustafsson Bader was one that jumped to mind purely from a one plus one equals two kind of approach. You know, Gustafsson is a is a big draw in Europe. He's due a fight. Um, Bader is the most realistic next opponent for him. They're not going to put Gustafsson and Latifi together, I wouldn't have thought. Um, so Gustafsson Bader makes sense. Obviously, we've got the contract situation with with Ryan Bader, and maybe that's what's holding up any kind of announcement. Maybe that's the fight they want, but they need to they need to navigate these contractual waters first. If Bader signs, then they can make that fight. Perhaps that's what we're waiting for. But uh, the other two fights that I, I came up with were uh, a welterweight fight between Gunnar Nelson and Rafael Dos Anjos, who has announced he's moving up to 170 pounds. Um, that, given that RDA was a world champion at lightweight, Gunnar Nelson is a popular fighter in the region. That could potentially be sold as a main event. Not 100% sold on the idea entirely myself, but that's one that I suggested... And mm. another one which I think would make a reasonably good uh, main event, but other people have tweeted me and said, nah, that's not a main event, is uh, a women's strawweight bout between uh, Scotland's Joanne Calderwood and Carolina Korkowicz. I think that would be a good stylistic matchup. I think it would be an exciting fight. I think it features a former world championship contender against somebody who wants to get up into championship contention. And given that this fight we think he's going to be a fight pass exclusive stateside. We have to realise that the UFC are going to cut their cloth accordingly. We are not going to get a world championship fight on this mm-hmm. card. We may not get a number one contender fight on this card. We just have to be realistic here. Um, now, bearing that in mind, Carolina versus JoJo is not a terrible fight to put at the top of the card. The, the other option, of course, is that Jimmy Manoa, uh, who's already on the card against... Overtime, Corey Anderson. He's not beasting twenty-five-eight anymore. Well, he he, he probably is. Um, he's beasting so much he needed another nickname, so he's now doing overtime. Um, so overtime, Anderson and uh, the poster boy Jimmy Manoa. It's not beyond the realm of possibility that they can just bump that up to main event. So at the moment, we just don't know. We're we're playing guess guessing games right now. But um, I think Gustafsson Bader would make a lot of sense, but they've got to sort out Ryan Bader's contract. So. It depends what he does, I guess. Yeah, I saw Manuwa tweet out earlier on today that um, as far as uh, he's concerned, as of right now, he's definitely not the main event. So I yeah. think that rules him out for the time being. But like you said, they could easily bump him up if they can't get something else sorted. Um, I've always been um, of the opinion that of all the European shows, London's always um, the most important one, I think, uh, for for the UFC's um 
schedule in Europe uh, because it is London. That's where the headquarters are based. The London card typically gets the most media turnout. Uh, that's where the massive. That's where the most potential is um, to to grasp and and cling on to as many mainstream outlets that maybe want to jump on the sport. Um, obviously, uh, the BT Sport deal for them is is huge um, in this part of the world. They're a big partner of the UFCs. Um, some of those options that you mentioned, I think, would be received in a very lukewarm um, manner by uh, the fan base here in the UK. Um, I think with the London card, of all the European cards, they do always need to try and put their best foot forward. Now, they're in a bit of a pickle at the moment with their biggest uh, uh, UK export and Michael Bisping being a champion. And he, he's obviously going to be fighting stateside on pay-per-view. So that rules him out. We were quite you know, fortunate and lucky to get him on pay-per-view here in Manchester um, last October. Well, that's not going to happen again anytime, anytime soon. That was definitely a, a once-in-a-blooming situation. So... Um, I'm I'm a little concerned. I'm not going to lie. I am I am a little concerned. Uh, I'm I'm interested to find out what the main event's going to be, and it'll be interesting to find out what the what the reaction is um, of the of the MMA community here. Um, like you said, Simon, we we discussed this a little bit uh, before we went on air today. Um, this is going to be a, a UFC Fight Pass uh, event for the North American uh, market, so they'll be watching it um, during the day. Um, so. Again, not sure where their priorities lie in terms of trying to get a big blockbuster marquee uh, main event put together. Uh, but as long as we can get one um, half of that main event, um, you know, uh, a highly ranked opponent where he could potentially be um, in line for a tile shot. So there's some sort of story on an angle there. Someone like an Alexander Gustafsson, maybe. Then I think we'll be happy with that. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Um, as I say, we're, we're kind of... Uh we're kind of shooting in the dark a little bit here, trying to work out who it's going to be. And, uh, you know, the truth of it is there is no obvious contender is there. So it's going to be very interesting to see what, what, what they come up with. Uh, and also very interesting to see what the fan reaction is going to be like. But as you say, I think it was 10, 10 fights on the card already. You'd expect two, maybe three more to be added, uh, and tickets go on sale at the end of this week. So interesting to see. You'd like to think we'll find out in the next few days. Yeah, um, and the next question is actually a bit of a follow-up there from Rob Turnbridge, and who says, uh, with tickets due for release this week, what do you actually think of the UFC um, London lineup? Um, it's definitely uh, a bit of a an England or slash uh, UK slash Britain against the world type of feel, don't you think so? It is, it is. It reminds me, there was a show in Nottingham years ago, I think it was in 2012, and uh, that was very much lined up in a similar way. Didn't go well for the Brits that night, if I remember rightly. Um, but uh, yeah, it was. In some ways, I think it could work quite nicely. I think having plenty of Brit, I I don't mind having lots of Brits on the card. I know there are some people who complain that it's the same old faces on the card, but of course, you, of course, you're going to want to put the British fighters on the British card because that's where the bulk of their fans are. So. While I understand people's desire to want to see different names and different faces, and I'd love to see different faces and different names as well, I also think it's important that the British fighters get the opportunity to fight on home soil when they can. I think it's important to them. I think it's important to their fan base. And uh, it also helps the atmosphere in the stands at the end of the day. You look at the Brazilian fight cars. They're packed to the gills with Brazilian fighters, and the crowd goes nuts for every single one of them. So... I don't think he's any different here. And the final question comes from 
Daryl Chumbly, uh, and he says, with how Bellator 170 went, do they need to change how they structure cards? Um, and he gives a suggestion of perhaps building around Daly, Rory, MVP, and perhaps not Chael, Tito, and Hoist. I think with the Scott Coker era, are we now in year three? I think we're in year three now under under his regime. And, and I think from when he started to where he is now, we're starting to level up now. And I think we're starting to really get um, the full picture of what his vision for the promotion is. I think initially, you know, they were leaning on the likes of, you know, a freak show fight like Kimbo Slice and Dada 5000, you know, getting old man Hoist Gracie and old man Ken Shamrock out of retirement uh, to dance one more time. And, you know, there were some fights like that they were putting together uh, that didn't make any sense whatsoever. But listen, they did, you know, great for the ratings. I think some of the criticism that they received in the past was they didn't really put enough of their young and upcoming uh, prospects and talent, um, or at least fighters that they could push to the next level um, on that main card that could benefit um, from some of the, uh, you know, some of the, the the audience that were going to be tuning in, perhaps for the for the main event. I actually think they did it. They got it right um, with this past weekend's event. I thought that uh, with Tito Ortiz and Chael Sonnen, they were still on the the right side um, in terms of age, where it was a fair fight. It was fairly competitive. Um, and it was going to be Tito Ortiz's last fight anyway. Uh, there was a good story of Chael Sonnen coming back after three years out of the game. And that co-main event, you know, we all knew that that was going to be fireworks, you know. And, and regardless of who had, you know, of, of ever would have won that fight, they were going to get a massive platform. Uh, and thankfully for the British contingent, Paul Daly was able to get the rub. I'm sure when the ratings come out, that's argu- arguably going to be the biggest audience that he would have fought in front of um, and at this stage of his career again coming off a loss from last summer that's going to do him great uh, wonders and again the fact that he called out Rory McDonald on that platform that may have just kind of sealed the deal and, and done the matchmaking work for him so kudos on him uh, for using that platform uh, that's, this is exactly what I'd like to see uh, Bellator do moving forward um, I don't mind them perhaps using the elder statesman um, of their roster uh, in the main event slots, uh, if they are the marquee, um, you know, names and the and the and the draws that they have at their disposal for the time being, as long as they can include some of the younger talent, some of the the really exciting fighters um, on that main card, and and give them a push and give them a lift. Absolutely, absolutely. I think you know people like AJ McKee deserve mm. deserve that big push. I think he's someone who. To watch that guy fight, you know that he's going to be a superstar, and I think the earlier you can push him, you know, the better. So, I think it's it's tricky because they obviously don't have the same depth of talent pool that that the UFC has, so they have to craft their cards a little bit more differently. Um, but I think I think you, it's you just kind of horses for courses. You know, when you've got a veterans fight that's going to draw, then you sell that angle. But then the next time round. You know, you sell you sell a different angle, and what you eventually will do is your stars will gradually rise up. But I do think get the prospect, you know, the the hot prospects on that main card. I, I completely agree with you there, and uh, start to tee up fights further down the line by by just putting pieces into position, and and hopefully that thing things start to pan out, and then you end up with with big fights further down the line. And you know, we could have a daily versus McDonald fight or a daily versus Page fight. Um, makes total sense 
You know, Michael Venom Page has always received that 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 little push. Uh, people like AJ McKee, I think, deserve that 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 sort of push as well, and I'm sure he'll start to get that now. So, um, yeah, I think, as I say, it's tricky because they don't have as many shows, and they don't have as many fighters to uh, to sort of move around and, and position. So it's a trickier a trickier job for the matchmakers over there at Bellator MMA. And that's a wrap, Simon. Um, had a lot of questions to get through this week, but uh, we really appreciate it because it helps us uh, create an entire segment for the show. Um, we love it because it means that you guys are interacting with us and engaging with us. Um, and hopefully you're happy with some of the, the debate, uh, the different points of view uh, and some of the answers that we have for you uh, in this uh, particular segment of the show, which we really, really love doing. So that's a wrap for the Q&A this week, Sai. Brilliant. You can get us on Twitter at the Britpack MMA and uh, you can subscribe on iTunes, on Stitcher and Acast. Hit up our website, uh, thebritpackmma.com. Now, normally at this point, we then cut to the uh, the fucking in the bushes music, which is our, our theme tune. We're going to do something a little bit different this week. My Stiggy is a UK rapper who produced a brilliant end of year wrap up for 2016, where he goes through the story of mixed martial arts last year. It's fantastic. I spoke to him this week. He said he was more than happy for us to finish the show with it this week. So all that remains is to say for Chamat Sandu and for me, Simon, thank you for listening and enjoy the MMA 2016 wrap-up with my Stiggy. Speak next week. What's up, Fight Fans? John Gunn here coming to you outside of the Octagon for a very special rundown from the world of mixed martial arts in 2016. Through the medium of music, I am going to be giving you a wrap-up of what's gone down. Oh, what? I'm not doing the rap. Who's doing the rap? Is it Helwani? That guy gets all the best gigs. Love him, but he's everywhere. Who's doing it then? My Stiggy. Okay, keeping it UK. Yeah, yeah. I diggy, diggy, diggy. All right. Now the year's been hectic for the scene. We've seen a few retire and many switch teams. And though doing the village strut seems to be every kid's dream. Here's an MMA wrap-up for 2016. Now the first big fight to set it off was meant to once announce. We knew it had fight of the year potential by the end. We could tell they gave us more than they promised. So I gotta give that award to Lawler and Condit. The five-round display of your heart was tremendous. Epic ending when both had their arms on the fences. A true display of guts entertaining us. Like when Kimbo was trying to get Dada to flash his craving us. No need to mention that fight. That one was slow in the Shamrock's reaction to another. Sure. Speaking of which, let's take note and remember Never to upset a drunk Juliana Pena <laughs> Alright, let's get into it Personality of the year awards Gotta go to Derek Lewis In the cage, the black beast proof is one of the scariest But on social networks, lose hilarious Before Cole Miller got his tickets to the back row We saw the presser with McGregor dressed as El Chapo Plan to move up and get the 155 strap But Dos Anjos' foot didn't like that So they brought Nathan as a late replacement 
And boy, did Nathan make a statement though. McGregor did his best to push his buttons. Diaz made him tap quicker than yelling out. You do fucking know. Most was shocked and worried that Connor's ride would have suffered, but Nate was like, Hey, I'm not surprised, motherfucker. So a rematch was set. Nate was all in. Connor did more cardio and less stakes in the morning, okay. but for all the water bottle throwing and the monster can attacks. We were wondering where it of war towers at. C Mac won the rematch by decision. So now we could continue on his mission. Cause being king of two divisions was a title he was out to get. The lightweight champs who he planned to devour next. And since RDA lost the belt to Alvarez, McGregor dealt with him. Now there's hardly any doubt as left. History made at such a peak sighting sweet, though they only let him run with both titles for a couple weeks. He's probably fighting of the year for most listening. But I'm giving that award to Bisping. I mean he beat Silver to decision, even though the spider dropped him. Stunned Rock hold, then took the title from him. And even though Henderson gave the count a tough fight, who else could do more than this with one eye? Other standouts not hard to admire. Me, Ochech, and Jacek, and Marlon, Marias, Holloway, and Yaya. Both deserve to remain here. Angela Overkill Hill had a great year. Mighty Mouse is on the street, that's astounding. They even built a whole tough season around him. Elliot did well, but he soon found it hard though. But nothing like Fedor did with Maldonado. Holly was the champ who lost the belt to take. Made a mistake in the last round, couldn't escape that upset of the year. Had us quite impressed, but then cut. But upstage by Lioness Shouts to Nunes Watch her as she's rising The rumour is she might have sent Ronda back in hiding Bellator came to England Where MVP caught the knockout of the year in my opinion Perfect fly knee to finish Cyborg Santos And damn near opened up a black hole That post pick was messy Runner up Groovy Lando Spinning kick on McNessy What Rumble did to Glover made us scream Oh boy like Cuff Swanson's three round war with do whole choice That's when we learnt there must be granite inside those drawers The year the nick the tooth weren't looking for a fight no more Man they were folding old Vince like a neat necktie It's another thing that made us cringe at me heads eye Finally the debut was made by CM Punk And we were looking at each other like Wait, we being punk during his evolution He promised to give his all But then we saw him get quickly mauled by Mickey Gall who went on to beat Sage in their battle. That might be karma for the way he treated Apple. Before Pettis found that fire started with his cars, we saw another of ours enter dancing with the stars. Don't underestimate that Banzan chick, cause evidently she was secretly working on that can-can kick. When Woodley got that quick KO against Robbie and became champion, damn near stunned everybody. But when we saw his Wonder Boy battle, it was clearly true that the chosen one was champion material. Word to the return of Brock Lesnar Usada's got fighters popping left, right and centre Dreams got crushed like Tito's juice box But without testing, how would we know who's doing what? Peace and the missing link People you wouldn't think this so hot We doubted the cheetah would even drink It was a shocker when Jones got suspended for the dick pills But that's when we all knew the shit's real But nothing's more compelling than us all hearing when the UFC sold for four billion. We knew they had the market in the clamp, but now there's no doubt for Tita Bros will laugh into the bank. A game changer once it hit the news. Same year we saw a champ Cody Nola. Dinta Cruz, a new heroes in places you can see. Where Batman and Medea have stakes in UFC. If at first the roster weren't sure, by now the majority felt they were worth more. So another thing we saw more than ever before was the amount of free agents out testing the waters. Offers had Bendo and Mitrione running, plus unexpected. The names like Rory and Chell Sonnen There's multiple associations out now recruiting them To get him compensated So many they're confusing him Fighters want to see what he's can do for them But if there's really one common goal Why ain't they formed the union? Oh, yeah.
Surely the first step is uniting Similar to RFA and legacy fighting Seems like before the situation gets any better Showtime will announce McGregor be Mayweather I doubt it will but if it happens man The planet might lose its balance like that fight night cameraman Sub of the year is Mackenzie Gunn For that Omar Platter RNC move I better learn runner up was also so close Can't forget when Rothwell put that go-go choke on Barnett Shouts of course today me and Maya we saw your right favour retire Melvin Manoff in his title match was truthfully robbed Why hell one he got in trouble for doing his job Lost credentials so for two hours Turned on the waterworks Then got him back days later so I'm sure it worked While Ronda gave the media a black stare King of the cage and got a two division champ there Looking the third title Gotta give our respects to a man like the Spaniard One Archuleta The sports saw losses that were too much for handling R.I.P. Kevin Randleman Jordan Parsons Ryan Jimmo, Joao Carvalho, Josh Raman and Kimbo Speaking of people we miss, I dedicate my next shout to the crew of Inside MMA Peace to Kenny and Bass, always love your reports Can't thank you enough for what you've done for the sport Prior to us bidding farewell to Goldberg Cole Flow failed to use his own words Don Fry got accepted in the Hall of Fame And Cage Warriors return was for sure again Honorary rest in peace, the king I need for him Let's flow like a butterfly and sting like a bee Unless it's fight time, make sure we aren't hurting him like Badoo Post fight, push kicking Tarverdi And be sure you're all ready when time for your end But keep it more friendly than Dana and Bjorn Redley Be prepared for what the year's got in store But show no fear like Max Holloway Pointing to the floor, may your team stay tight Let nothing ever get between Welcome to 2017. Yeah. Yeah. Marble lovers. Marble lovers.